for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's great to, uh, great to be back with you guys. And uh, for those of you who I don't know, uh, I just thought maybe I'd introduce myself to you by just showing you 60 seconds of photos from my life. Would that be okay? Yeah. This is just a bit of fun, yeah? Okay. So first of all, first photograph, folks, me as a baby. Thank you for that, R. Uh, you can see here, folks, that I was actually born with a receding hairline. And if you look very carefully, you can see that I was also born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this room, at least one of my eyes is looking at you. <laughs> Next photograph, me, age seven. Now, as you can see, uh, I've really got a number of problems here. Uh, in fact, we could spend the whole morning going through my problems one by one. But just to choose one, you can see what's, ha what's happened here is that my mum has got out the old kitchen scissors. <laughs> and she's tried to cut my fringe straight, but she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? <laughs> Next photo, me in a band. Oh, yes. Yes, when, when I was a student, I too was in a band. And uh, Jim standing on one side of me. Jim has a bit of a pout. Can you see his lips pouting? Yes? That's because Jim's been in a band before. <laughs> Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before, so we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Uh, next photograph, folks, me on my stag day. <laughs> so uh, just to explain, if you're not from this country, uh, here in Britain, if you are a man and you want to get married you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. <laughs> and now I'm married to my wonderful wife, Julia. We've got these four uh, lovely daughters. So I am now uh, 49 years into my journey through life. And probably all of us, in fact, everybody in Ashford will probably agree that during a typical, I don't know, 70, 80, 90-year life, uh, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, granted, this moment may only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes... You and I ask this question, am I alive for a reason? I mean, I can see, talk, feel, I can have fun, but is there any purpose to life? I mean, at least for those five minutes, you and I ask, why am I here? I mean, why is anything here? How come there is something rather than nothing? Why did anything begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? Uh, why is there a, a planet, Earth, with me living on it? I showed you a few photos from my life. Well, right now, you could take your phone. You could show me a few photos from your life. But once we've added those photos together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives amount to anything in the greater scheme of things? Or are we really just meaningless bags of chemicals? Is life ultimately pointless? And during these five minutes when we're thinking about this huge question, along comes a 33-year-old man. Now, this man is the most famous person who's ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. He looks at you and me straight in the eye and says, you're not an accident. You're supposed to be here. 
you are worth something. Jesus of Nazareth says there really is a loving God. This is a loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. Jesus says that this loving God deliberately made you on purpose in the hope of having a wonderful relationship with you. A relationship that is good for this life, but it's so good it goes on into the next life, into a place where you'll never be bored. This is a place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. So Jesus says you're that loved by God. Now that is quite a claim. So what happened to me? Well, I didn't go to church. Uh, In fact, I didn't have any friends who went to church. But then I was invited along, somewhat out of the blue, to a church like this church. And I had lots of questions. One of those questions was, hang on a minute, hasn't science buried God? And this morning I'd like to explore this question and do so in terms of the journey that I went on and also some of the questions that I asked along the way. This book that I'm holding is the personal story of Francis Collins, a famous geneticist. It's his story of how he converted from atheism to Christianity. It's the story of how halfway through his academic career as a scientist, he became a follower of Jesus. And after becoming a Christian, Francis Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And then in April 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the human genome. This is one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. Has science buried God? Well, uh, clearly not in the opinion of leading scientists like Francis Collins, who believe in God. So they see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. Or how about my friend Keith Fox? Keith is professor of biochemistry at Southampton University. He's one of the UK's leading biologists, but he's part of a church like this church where he runs a group called Reasonable Faith. Or how about Christine Dunn? She's a convert from atheism to Christianity. Chris is professor of physics at Durham University. She's married to one of the elders at Emmanuel Church, Durham. And she's a friend of mine. She leads the Alpha Course at her church. There's a long list of people like this These are outstanding scientists who are also keen Christians. And they would all say that juxtaposing science and God as enemies or opposites is a category mistake. Now, what do they mean when they say it's a category mistake? Well, let's imagine that I decide to make uh, a cup of tea. And let's imagine that at some point, while the kettle is boiling, let's imagine scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby the heat is turned into boiling water. So, we now know how the kettle boiled. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say, because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It would be a mistake because you could still quite accurately say, the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore, Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, that would be a category mistake. So, we don't need an adversarial either-or explanation. And actually, it seems like most people in Britain agree with this. A European Commission poll found that 78% of people in this country believe in God and or the supernatural. 
But these are the very same British adults who've got more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems even in this modern technological age, actually most British people don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either-or. turns out most people do see science and God as a both-and. And so having heard this kind of reply, I then said, okay, well, maybe you're right. Maybe, hasn't science, maybe, maybe science hasn't buried God. But come on, hey, look, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does seem increasingly unlikely. Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. So let me see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly, then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. Just accept it, they said. It's always been there. And they used to argue in that way because at that time, in the late 1920s, the universe was thought to be locked in a static, steady state. Then an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not actually locked in a static, steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and they're also moving away from each other. And the easiest way to visualize what Hubble saw through his telescope would be to use a balloon. Now, imagine with me for a moment that these stars on my daughter's balloon, are actually galaxies. Now, what Hubble saw through his telescope in California is that wherever we look in the universe, these galaxies are moving away from us, and they're also moving away from each other. And so scientists concluded that, seeing as the universe is expanding, it must at some point in the past, have been much smaller than it is today. Therefore, they concluded that at some time in the past, the universe must have had a beginning. And then, in 1965, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias, two astronomers, discovered some background radiation in the universe that was left behind by this beginning moment. This radiation is like a signature left behind by the beginning moment. So today, there's an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe did have a beginning. Now, this was a huge blow to atheists because they could no longer argue that the universe had always been there. This would be quite a good example of how a scientific discovery has actually made it easier to believe in God because this beginning moment does look like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, where God says, let there be light, and there was light. Let me put the same thing to you a different way. Imagine if I said to you this morning that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. But then, a fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of Ashford. Now, the sudden appearance of the huge carrot would demand some kind of explanation. You see, it is not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe. No, space 
and time themselves began to exist at this beginning moment. Space, time, matter, and energy all began to exist at this beginning moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. And so this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, this sounds reasonable. We don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. And as we've just seen, this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model today. The conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Something and, or, or someone that exists outside of time and space caused the universe to come into being. Maybe I can finish this point with, with a funny story. A funny story told to me and my wife by a friend of ours called Angela. This is a lady that lives in the, in the village where my wife's parents live. And this is a village uh, in Surrey. It's quite rural, actually, and they only have one, one bus a day. So this lady, Angela... She's standing at the bus stop waiting for the daily bus and it's a cold, snowy day. And as she's waiting at the bus stop, um, the bus doesn't come. Time goes up. There's a couple of other ladies are waiting for the bus as well. And eventually, Angela gives up. She thinks, well, obviously it's a snowy day. There's ice on the road. The bus must have been cancelled. She's just literally walking off when at that moment, a car pulls up at the bus stop. And there's a woman driving this car. She winds down the window and she calls out, do you want a lift? And Angela thinks, well, yeah, <laughs> I really do want a lift. So Angela gets into this woman's car. And in fact, the other two ladies at the bus stop, they get in as well. So picture the scene. There's now four women driving along in this car. There's this woman who's driving. There's three on the back seat. Angela's in the middle. She's got a lady that she doesn't know on her right-hand side. There's another woman that she doesn't know on her left-hand side. But Angela says, the funny thing was, nobody said anything. <laughs> they drove along in complete silence for five minutes. Five minutes later, they've now been driving along the four of them for ten minutes. Still, silence. No conversation in the car. And then, the lady on Angela's right-hand side, she starts talking to the woman that's driving. It's obvious these two women already know each other. And then the lady on Angela's left-hand side, she joins in the conversation. It's obvious... She also knows the driver. She also knows the lady in Angela's right. And then the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela that what must have happened here is that this woman was driving a car along the road and as she passed the bus stop, she looked out the window, she saw two of her friends at the bus stop. <laughs> and so she stops her car and she winds down the window and she calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? And as her two friends get into her car, this random other person gets into the car. But because they were British, and because they hadn't been introduced, they just sat there in silence. It's all very awkward we haven't been introduced. But what should I say? But you know what? Even though it was an, kind of a socially awkward moment for Surrey folk, at no time during that journey... Did any of the women in the car think that Angela 
had come into existence for absolutely no reason at all. None of them thought that Angela had just happened. No, because everyone in the world bases their life on the law of cause and effect. To get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that is capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence. Well, you could call that first cause God. So I looked at the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if we were just 5% closer to the sun, we'd fry. We know that if we were 5% further away, we'd freeze. There wouldn't be any life on Earth. We know that our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of our Milky Way, in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. Maybe you can see the tiny yellow letters there where we are, a rare, safe place in the Milky Way. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about when we're looking at the origin of the universe is far more impressive than any of that. Because way back at the beginning of the universe, there's an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but it flies outwards at a perfectly controlled speed. Too fast an expansion, nothing would ever settle down. There wouldn't ever be a universe. But alternatively, too slow an expansion, and mm, we can't get going in the first place. So the universe expands, but the speed of expansion turns out to be critical. If it slows down too much, the universe collapses back on itself. Folks, we now know that if the rate of expansion in the earliest seconds of the universe had been smaller... By even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of the expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant. Now, that is the energy density of empty space. Therefore, the cosmological constant can't be just any old number. No. In order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And it isn't just the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom of this chart. Turns out there are 20 of these forces. There are 20 values. There are 20 numbers. All of these have to be just so. Otherwise, no humans could ever have existed. Even the tiniest variation, here or there, makes all the difference. Maybe I can just give you a funny example of this principle. And uh, for this to work, folks, uh, I'd like to invite you all to do me a favour. Could you, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to vote. I'm going to ask for a show of hands all over the, all over the room. Uh, for, for this to work, could you all please, just for a moment, please, could you just look at my face? Not a pleasant sight, I know. But as you're looking at my face, I'd like to ask you whether you'd be kind enough to raise your hand if, looking at my face, you think that I have got a criminal record. Could you please raise your hand? A couple of hands straight up at the back. Okay. Church leader's absolutely convinced. Yeah, almost certainly. It's just a hand. Okay. Could you, hands down, thank you very much. Could you now raise your hands if you think, looking at my face, that I have not got a criminal record? Could you please raise your hands? Oh, okay. 
the majority. Well, folks, the, the truth is that actually I have got, yes, I have got a criminal record. And what happened was that on the 14th of November, 1988, I was arrested for alarm, distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. I can see some of you are interested. I mean, I, I will happily tell you about my crime. But what was really quite exhilarating was the way, the manner of my arrest. Because I was arrested. I was arrested running away. I was being chased by the police. They were in a police car, sirens blaring, lights flashing. I was on foot, yeah? So I'd run across two roads, and then they're chasing me in the car. I jump over a fence into a field, thinking they can't get the car through the fence. So I'm now running uphill through a muddy field, the police car screeches to a halt. The coppers fly at the back of this car. They jump over the fence. So they're now chasing me. I'm running as fast as I can up this hill. They're I'm in a police chase. Um, so uh, they're running as far. I'm running as fast as I can. And I can hear the quicker of these two coppers is getting closer and closer and closer until eventually he does this excellent rugby tackle from behind. And I go, bang, face down in the mud. And I'm lying there in the mud thinking to myself, that was cool. <laughs> One minute, I'm full speed. The next, face down. I, mean, I thought they must practice that. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm lying there in the mud, and I, and I, I stand up and I say to this the, the policeman, "Of course, you know, I've been rifling through all the cop TV shows that I've been watching growing up. And as you know, on telly, when somebody gets arrested, the policeman says, "You're Nick, Sonny Jim." Do you know? He actually said that. I was so delighted. So I said to him, look, you know, officer, I've really just got to say a massive thank you. I mean, that was really quite exciting. You know, the flashing lights, the, the chase, the sirens, you know. I'm from Wimbledon. It's really quite exhilarating. And then on TV, what happens next, as you know, is that the, one of the policemen, they put their arm up your back like this. So he did that as well. And then they march you off to the squad car. And as you get to the squad car on telly, you know what happens? That as you're getting into the back seat of the car, one of the policemen pushes your head down, as if you've never got into a back seat of a car ever before. And so he did that as well. So I'm, I'm in the back seat of the car, and I go down the station, I empty out my pockets, and I was arrested. Now, it might be that by this stage there's one or two of you, and you're kind of curious, you know, what was the alarm? What was the distress? What was the willful obstruction of a highway? Well, I have to confess to you that I was a student at the time, and what had happened was I was just going home to this college where I lived, and as I was going home, I noticed there was a group, quite a big group of about 20 of my friends, and they got hold of quite a large felled tree that they were moving to block the entrance to a rival, and in our opinion, inferior college. And so I naturally joined in because at that time, I genuinely thought that it was a good thing to do. I thought there was no public benefit to this college anyway. So blocking off access was a good thing to do. I thought I was genuinely uh, you know, making the world a better place. So I joined in. And then, of course, what happened was flashing blue lights appear in the distance. Yeah, All my mate Scarpa. And I remember thinking, no, you don't need to run away. I mean, we're students. This is obviously a student prank. The police are reasonable people. I'm from Wimbledon. I'll be able to reason with these people. But no, when the police car got really close, I thought, no, probably this is wrong. <laughs> probably this will turn out to be alarm, distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. And so because I was the last to leave the scene of my crime, I was also the easiest to catch. Do you know what? If I'd run away two seconds earlier with all of my mates, I would never have been arrested. But I delayed for those two seconds. 
And then I ran. That was the difference. Those two seconds are the difference between me being arrested and me not being arrested. Folks, we are talking about the difference between the universe existing and the universe never having existed coming down to a far smaller variable than those two seconds. Roger Penrose, who helped develop our current understanding of black holes, he worked out the odds or the chances of entropy. Entropy is the stuff at the start of the universe that then starts decaying. The chance that entropy would have the exact number or value that it does have, here's the chance, one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Folks, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. But we have to have entropy being exactly that number, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Entropy is just one of 20 factors. All 20 on our list have to be just as they are. So why is our universe so unlikely? Because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of our universe's existence. It turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just, bing, exist. But not just exist. They have to be finely tuned to each other. The same is true of matter and antimatter. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak nuclear force. And so the list goes on. Any messing with any of the numbers in the column that says value in our universe if you touch any of those dials, there'd either be no universe or there would be no life. Let's take gravity, for example. Now, let's imagine that this tape measure was enormously long. So long that it actually stretched from one side of the universe over here all the way over to the other side of the universe over here. If it did it would accurately represent the total range of possible force strengths that gravity could have had. Over here, we have the weakest possible gravitational force. Over here, on the other side of the universe, we have the strongest possible gravitational force. Now, let's imagine that the strength of gravity is actually set here. Now, if I wanted to increase the strength of gravity by just two and a half centimeters from here, to here, from here to here, scientists have now discovered that that tiny increase from here to here would actually increase the strength of gravity on Earth a billionfold. It would mean that there would never have been any life on Earth. This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. In other words, planet Earth would never have been any bigger than that stage. Well, that's just gravity. We have to have all of these numbers on the screen, all perfectly related to each other. Let's take another two. Scientists have found out that two of these numbers are fine-tuned to each other to a precision of one part in 10 to the power 40. Now, what does that number look like? Well, helpfully for us, Dr. Hugh Ross from Toronto University, he has a famous illustration of the 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. Here's what he says. He says, imagine there was a continent the size of North America, and then you cover that continent with small coins. And then you pile your coins up 236,000 miles so high that they reach all the way from the Earth to the moon. 
Hugh Ross says, then take an additional one billion other continents, also the size of North America, and you cover them also with your small coins. And again, you pile your coins up again, 236,000 miles, so that, again, they reach up into the sky. Hugh Ross says, then take an additional one coin, but this time, paint that coin red. And then hide your one red coin somewhere in one of your one billion piles the size of North America that reach to the moon. Then, after you've hidden your coin, he says, invite a member of the public to participate in a scientific experiment. If they say yes, you blindfold them and then you say, pick a coin, any coin. The chance that this person will pick out the one red coin first time from one of the one billion piles the size of North America that reached the moon is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. That's what we need for two of the items on our list to be related as they actually are. But in order for you to be alive on this planet, all 20 have to be just as they currently are. Folks, I reached a point where I realized that in any other area of life, I would never accept sheer luck or chance as the best explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Next, thirdly, the origin of organic life. Maybe we could get into this by me telling you about a funny thing that happened to me 28 years ago while I was watching England play football in the World Cup on the TV. Now, for some of you uh, younger ones here, um, what I'm about to say may seem difficult for you to imagine but I'd like you to know that when I was growing up here in this country, every four years when the Football World Cup came around, people in this country genuinely thought that England would win the World Cup. <laughs> now, I, even though we all knew in, deep down in our hearts that we wouldn't win the World Cup, we all knew that we would be knocked out on penalties. But in 1990, oh, what a wonderful year. When Italian 90 comes around, England are playing Belgium in the quarterfinal. And it's nil-nil, going into the final minute. I can tell you, as we were packed into the bar that night, we were all watching the game on the big screen, the World Cup quarterfinal, England versus Belgium. In the final minute, as David Platt swiveled to volley the ball into the net for the winning goal, in that moment, as the ball crossed the line, as the ball hit the back of the net, I kissed people <laughs> who I'd never met. What a moment to be alive. We're going to the World Cup semi-final. There is something about life that is exciting. And if each of us were able to look at our own unique DNA code now, we would be blown away by the complexity of the information that's carried in each and every one of our cells. And with computer animation, we can now look at this remarkable system at work. And after we've entered here inside the heart of a cell, we're looking at something that's going on inside your body right now. We can see here the tightly wound strands of DNA. There they are. These are the storehouses that contain the instructions that are needed in order to build every protein in an organism. And in a process that's known as transcription, there's a molecular machine that first unwinds the DNA helix, which exposes the genetic instructions that are needed 
in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then there's another molecular machine. And this one is really clever. It copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. And when this transcription process is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information out through the nuclear pore complex. Here we are. Let me out. Let me out. Knocking on the door. This thing is the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory. This factory is called a ribosome. And there, after attaching itself securely, the wonderful process of translation begins. You see, inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids, which you can see arriving at the bottom of the screen here, these are being transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains that are often hundreds of units long. And it is their sequential arrangement that's what determines the type of protein that's being manufactured. Now, remember, all of this is determined by your unique genetic DNA code. That code that was embedded in that double helical structure that we saw at the beginning of our short video. When this chain is finished, it's moved from the ribosome to this barrel-shaped machine where it's going to be folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. And it's amazing to think that while we're watching this on the screen, exactly this is happening at a microscopic level inside your body right now. After the chain has been folded into a protein, it's been released, and then it's shepherded by another molecular machine and taken to the exact location where it's needed. Wow. That is a cell today. But even the most primitive, even the most basic cell that scientists have ever been able to imagine would still contain information. Information in a code. So the code and the means of translating the code are both needed from the word go. One is useless without the other. So here's the mega question. Where did the information come from in the first ever living cell, which must have reproduced itself? And I've listed on the screen some of the newly discovered barriers to solving this question. Suffice to say that we don't have a naturalistic, viable explanation of how life started on Earth. In fact, as science progresses with each passing decade, the problem of getting life from non-life increases. Okay, well, we're out of time this morning. Let's try and draw some of these threads together. Nothing that I've said this morning proves that God exists. I think that's probably obvious. Nothing that I've said today proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, then when you look at the origin of the universe, in fact, when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, and in fact, when you look at the origin of organic life in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent, intelligent first cause. And you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. So it's clear that actually science hasn't buried God. God's existence is a reasonable 
explanation for the existence of the universe and for the existence of life. Okay, finally, what about Charles Darwin's famous theory of evolution? Well, evolution begins with the entire universe already in existence. Evolution doesn't have anything to say about how the universe started or how life began. So let's just be clear about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory is. Biological evolution doesn't even start until the universe has already been around for 10, 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did it begin to exist? Well, evolution doesn't even address those questions. Evolution begins after you've got the universe and after you've got planet Earth and after you already have a single-celled organism living on the surface of our planet in the ideal conditions. So I think it's obvious that evolution could be true and God still exists. I mean, it would be a mistake to argue because evolution has happened, God doesn't exist. That is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. That is the category mistake that we started with. So I want to look very briefly at three different responses, Christian responses to evolution. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. Firstly then, young earth creation. This is the view that the earth is young. It's only about twenty to 30,000 years old. It was created in six 24-hour days. This view says that common descent evolution between species hasn't happened. If you'd like to find out more about this view, you can do so at Answers in Genesis. The second view is called Old Earth Creationism, and this view actually accepts the scientific consensus today, which says that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. But this view also says, in common with the first, that actually evolution between species, common descent, has not taken place. If you'd like to find out more about that view, you can do so at reasons to believe or reasons.org. A third view is theistic evolution. This view differs from the first two views in that it says that common descent evolution between species has taken place. They would argue that God has supervised or guided the process to a greater or a lesser extent. And here you could look at biologos. Now, all three of these views are taken by sincere Christians who want to take the Bible seriously. Obviously, they do interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis differently. And in this church, you'll probably find all three of these views represented. And in fact, you'll probably find a number of other views as well. Okay, so what is the bottom line? Well, the bottom line must be that some of the world's leading scientists are Bible-believing Christians. No one here is being asked to throw their brain out the window. None of us are being asked to commit intellectual suicide. Evolution used to be... The big question 20, 30 years ago, it's no longer the big question because of all the evidence for fine-tuning that we've uncovered in our universe over the past 20 or 30 years. The big question now is, why is there a universe with life in it? Why would there be a fine-tuned universe? Every other circumstance rules out life. Every other scenario rules out life. Life is the least likely thing we would expect to find, yet we have a universe fine-tuned, set up to make advanced organic life possible. Why? Why on earth would that be? That is now the big question. And lastly, we might wonder, if God has gone to all this trouble to create our finely-tuned universe and then to create life, you'd almost expect that this God would do something to communicate to his creatures. 
Well, that is what the Bible is claiming happened through Jesus of Nazareth. And for me, finding that there really is a loving God, getting to know him personally through trusting Jesus Christ, that has been the single greatest discovery of my life. God bless you and thank you for your attention. Let's stand together, shall we? It's uh, often find it strange how God manages to link things that during a meeting feel quite juxtaposed together. And um, we were talking earlier about freedom from captivity and maybe the way that we feel about ourselves, um, who we are. I just feel like actually what Adrian's brought this morning really speaks into that. Because I think sometimes we have a self-worth issue. Um, Just reminded of Psalm 139 that David says, you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you need to hear that this morning because of the doubts that you have about yourself. And when Adrian was showing those molecules on the, 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 the screen, I just was amazed. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were made. We are Christ's workmanship created for good works in Christ. We are his workmanship. You have been made by God. Some of you have self-doubt and self-worth issues. God wants to just speak into those and say, you are wonderfully made. He loves you. He's called you. You are his. He calls you his son, his daughter. He's adopted you. He's made you a co-heir with Christ to the kingdom. Um, We're going to finish in a second, but if you would like prayer, if you know that this morning is a morning where you have really struggled this week, maybe with doubts about yourself, I'd just love to pray with you um, about that this morning. But before we close, let me just pray for all of us as we go away from this place. Lord, I just thank you so much for what you've spoken this morning. I thank you for Adrian and his ministry. Thank you for how well he's just equipped us this morning, God. With just amazing knowledge, God. We just thank you for him and the the gift that he has been to our church this weekend, but also to churches around this country as he uh, just, uh, just does this amazing work, Lord God. And we just thank you for him today. But Lord, we also just thank you, God, for you, that you decided to bring creation into existence just to show off your glory. Lord, not because you needed us or or anything other than, Lord, just to show yourself as the great God. And Lord, I thank you that you have created us for relationship with you. Lord, we are not whole until we find our purpose in you. Lord, and I I, I thank you, God, that you love each one of us with a love that, Lord, is so great that you went to the cross for us, with a love that is so great that you died for us, with a love that is so great that you rose again, Lord God, that we might know life and freedom. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray this week, God, as we go out of this place, God, that we live with that sense of confidence that we are more than conquerors because you love us and that you've called us. Lord, I pray as we go out from this place today, I pray for those here, Lord God, who just need to know that again this morning. Just keep affirming in them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen. Amen.